you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. That you might believe. That's what we're that's what we're talking about in the Gospel of John. We are we've been here for quite a while. We are finally in chapter five. Um, we are just slowly but surely, more slowly but surely, uh, making our way through the book of John. <clears throat> we're having a blast um, and and enjoying ourselves as we do it. Just to recap really quick what we've what we've been going over because I I, I want to kind of move us through this chapter together. Um, we saw uh, the last couple of weeks, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. This man is by a pool in an area called Bethesda, and Jesus heals him. It happens to be Saturday, the Sabbath. And this sort of causes a commotion amongst the people because the way that Jesus does this, the fact that he, number one, heals on the Sabbath, and then also he tells this man to take up his mat and go and to walk away. And the, the, the man sort of is obedient, he, he does this. The Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of his day see him carrying a mat on, a, on, on Sabbath and they get angry. They don't rejoice with him for being healed, come on, but rather they get angry at him for carrying his mat. So Jesus, in doing this, I have said, is confronting sort of these two camps that tend to be uh, active even still today in the church. Camps that I like to call the supernatural superstition camp. These are the people that think if you can just have the perfect experience with just the right ambiance and just the right sort of, if you can get the hairs to stand up on the back of your neck just right, then everything will be, everything will be great and all your problems will be solved and everything would be wonderful. If you can just sort, of, you just sort of make that thing kind of happen in just the right way, have just the right experience, then that will solve all your problems. This man had fallen into a belief that there was some sort of supernatural thing that would happen to the water, and if he could just get down there first, he would be healed. That never could happen for him, so that was his problem. If he could just have the right experience, then his problems would be solved. And Jesus shows him that's not the reality. What he needs is an encounter, not with an experience, but with a man, and that man's name is Jesus. But he also, Jesus is also confronting the, the other camp that tends to sort of gather around even to this day, and that is what I like to call the dogmatic fundamentalists. I don't know why we call them fundamentalists, because they're not very fun, but they are pretty mental. And, um, and they, they, these are the people that are more, more interested in perfecting an obedience, uh, following some external set of rules, sort of adhering to, to some sort of principles that they believe that they're able to perfectly sort of follow, that, that will solve all the problems. And, and, and Jesus shows them that that's not the reality either. I've sort of interjected that I think there's another camp as well. I think there's a camp active in this story that's active because you don't see them, and that is the people that sort of think all of this is made up and all of this is crazy, and these would just be the basic humanists that think all of this is just a manifestation of people's imaginations and it's not really real. And what we saw in the previous week is that Jesus calls us out of dogmatic fundamentalism, away from supernatural superstition, and beyond mere humanism. He calls us, he calls us, he, he steps into this. I believe he did this miracle on this day, in this moment, so he could have this conversation, this dialogue, so that we could read it, so that we could understand some things. And what Jesus says in the midst of all of this is that he's inviting us into an intimacy with the Father. Not into superstition and supernatural sort of ooh, awe, and wonder. Not into some sort of dogmatic read five verses of your Bible every day and that'll fix all your problems. Not pretend like all of this is made up. No, he says, be genuinely, really intimate with the Father. Amen? We're going to pick up the story now after all of that. Chapter 5, verse 17. If you got your Bibles or a supercomputer with the Bible on it, let's go ahead and get that fired up and ready. And then let's stand to our feet for the reading of God's Word. We love our Bibles, amen? We love God's word, we believe God's word, we read God's word. By his grace, we live God's word. John chapter five. We're gonna start in verse 17. This is kind of where Jesus makes this statement of intimacy. They're questioning him and 
Here's what he says in verse 17. He says, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, don't miss that first word in that sentence. So, if you're reading an NASB, therefore, it might say. So this is in response. They've, they, have, they have understood that what he was saying was that he was equal with God. And so, Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's pray together this morning, church. Holy Spirit, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it is a living and active word, not a dead and a passive word. And we thank you that it, it, it breaks through time and distance and culture and differences And it comes to us to impart life to us. And so Jesus, we accept your word this day. We come to you with with our hearts open, with our ears wide, with our minds actively engaged in what we are about to hear. And we ask that you and you alone would speak this day. Lord, we did not come here to hear the ramblings of a preacher, to hear the opinions of man. And so, God, I humbly ask that you would simply speak today through me, that we might hear you, that we might receive your word, that your word might travel deep within our hearts, shifting and adjusting and changing our attitudes, our perspective, our perception that we might leave this place conformed a little more to the image of your son, that the world might see you, Jesus, and might glorify you, Father. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Come on, everybody said? High five a couple people and grab a seat. Amen, amen. Well, this morning I'd like to talk to you for just a few moments um, under the title, Like Father, Like Son, Like Sons. Like Father, Like Son, Like Sons. I'll just dive in here this morning. I don't have a lot of time left, so I wanna wanna just get right to the point here. Uh, I, I want us not to miss this. I want us not to misunderstand Jesus. Jesus here is calling himself God. 
I say that because some of you may have gone to a community college with a Bible as lit teacher who taught you that Jesus never claims to be God. That Bible as lit teacher never read the Bible. Okay, um, Jesus here is blatantly calling himself God. If we miss it, certainly we understand if we read the text, his original audience did not miss that point. They understood that what Jesus was saying was that, was that he identified himself with God. That he, he shared an identity with God. You see, breaking their rules, we, we read earlier in previous weeks, when he broke the Sabbath, the Bible says that they desired to persecute him. In other words, they were trying to limit his influence or come against his ministry or, or try to discredit him. They were trying to spread rumors about him maybe or, or just try to convince people not to follow him. But yet when Jesus shifts from simply breaking their rules to really, truly unearthing and exposing the idolatry of their ideology, their empty, false, powerless religion, when he does that, suddenly now it shifts from, hey, we don't like this guy to, hey, I think we should kill this guy. We need to get rid of him. He, we can't afford to allow him to expose the reality of what's going on. Because make no mistake, this man who Jesus healed had been there for 38 years. And they were powerless to change him. And yet in a moment, Jesus brings Life to his body brings capacity to his being and restores him to the ability not only to walk, but to carry the thing, come on, that used to hold him down. So Jesus is exposing the, the, the reality of their empty religion. And so, so that they, they, they react how they want to kill him. And so I find this interesting. I'm just, I just throw this out as an aside. Just what does Jesus do? when he realizes that they now want him dead because of what he said? Does Jesus do what, what maybe we're told in our modern era he should do? Because what should he have done? What he should have done is say, hey guys, let's sit down for a second. I think we have a misunderstanding. Let's come to an agreement. Let's, let's, let's discuss this as you know, two intelligent people and, and let me unpack for you the doctrine of the Trinity help you understand so that we can still stay in right relationship. No, Jesus doesn't do that at all. Jesus stinking doubles down on what he said to them. Jesus goes, oh, you're offended at the fact that I identify with the father? Well, guess what? I don't just identify with him. I'm intimate with him. I not only relate to him as a father relates to the son as, as maybe in some sort of judicial, in some sort of a, a, a positional sort of relationship. He said, no, we actually have an intimacy, come on, in our relationship. I get this because he, he doesn't just say that, that, that he, he, he has God as his father. He says the father loves the son. The father loves the son. The father does not only just have a son, the father loves a son. The father relates to the son not only in some sort of, of disconnected, yeah, you're my kid and, and you know, you're there, but no, 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 he loves him. And this, this word love is, is interesting. Some of you may have read uh, some, some books by C.S. Lewis. He didn't just write stories about talking animals. He also wrote amazing theology and apologetics books. And one of these was a book called The Four Loves, where he unpacks the four primary words uh, used in Greek for love. And, and this is one of those four words when he says love. The word is phileo. Everybody say phileo. Phileo. For the nerds in the room, it's also written in Greek there. I say that like I'm not one of the nerds in the room who made the slide with the Greek on there. So phileo, this word phileo is interesting, and I, I want to I I do my best to convey to you what Jesus said to them in the way they would have heard it. Can we do that? So, so the word love, the word phileo here is, is to love. It's to love something. In other words, to treat it affectionately or kindly, to welcome it or to befriend it. That we're kind of maybe mildly uncomfortable with thinking about God relating that way, but, but it gets even more uncomfortable when you realize that this word phileo is an actionable love. It's a showing of love, which literally means that it's to show signs of love or to kiss. 
In the, in the scriptures later, we'll get here probably in like three years, where Jesus is, um, I'm just being honest with you, he's probably going to take us three years to get there, um, where, where, where Jesus is betrayed by Judas. And, and you may know the story, Judas betrays him with a kiss. Well, what Judas says to the Roman, or the, the temple guards is, as they're coming up is he says, to the one I phileo, that's the one you take away. To the one I kiss. What Jesus is saying here is, is God doesn't just relate to me as, as, as father in a positional sense. No, he relates to me as father in an intimate sense. I, I, in the sense that, that when, when you're a dad and your kids come on, climb up in your lap and want to be with you and want to want to want to spend time with you, want to engage with you. Jesus here is claiming not only his identity with the Father, but his intimacy with the Father. Jesus wants to be clear. In using this word phileo, Jesus wants to make sure it's abundantly clear just how scandalous his intimacy with the Father is. He's leaving no room for misunderstanding with them about how close he is to the Father. And Jesus is actually saying that it's out of this intimacy with the Father that Jesus has the capacity to perceive and the ability to partner with all that the Father is doing. He says, I, I'm not doing any of this because I want to, because, I, because in something in me is desiring to do this. No, I'm simply seeing what the Father does and doing what he does because I want to stay in relationship with him. So I'm just, I'm just working with dad. <laughs> I'm just going to work with my dad. I, I wonder, I wonder, this is, this is I, I can't fully build a doctrine on this, but just because we're friends. I wonder, we, we see Jesus when he's 12 and he's in the temple. And when his parents question him about this, he says, didn't you know I have to be about my father's business? I wonder if now Jesus is saying essentially the same thing to the people in the temple. I'm still about my father's business. And guess what, people? It doesn't just happen on Sunday. <laughs> It doesn't just happen within the four walls of the church. It's happening all the time. And so as he abides in relationship with the Father, he remains intimate with him. And, and therefore, from that place comes the capacity and the ability to perceive and partner with all that the Father is doing. The Father then, from this place of intimacy, has entrusted, Jesus says, the fulfillment of his very purposes to the son. Did you catch that? Everything the father's doing, he's doing through the son. Everything he's doing, as you, as you go through this list, as you go through these verses, essentially what you see is that everything the father has purposed is accomplished in, through, and by the son. He says the father makes me aware of what he's doing. He, he gives me the ability to raise the dead, to give life, to pronounce judgment, to receive honor even. So everything that's being purposed in the Father is being fulfilled in the Son. Are you tracking with me this morning? Everything is happening this way. This is what Jesus is trying to demonstrate to us here. As he's speaking to these religious leaders, he's saying, listen, you guys claim to desire to have a relationship with the Father, to be about what the Father's doing, but you, you fundamentally miss the point because everything he's doing is through me. And you want to reject me because I make you uncomfortable. And so Jesus is certainly doing this. He's saying, like father, like son. If, if, if you're angry at how I'm behaving, what you don't realize is you actually have fundamentally misunderstood who God is. You have a problem. You have a, you have a warped perspective of who God is if when you see Jesus, you get offended. And I certainly think that is what's going on here. But if I can just say, I also think there's another layer to what's happening here as well. See, I think part of why John was the one who wrote John, which I know that might sound weird to you to, to hear said, but I think the reason why God chose John, the disciple John, to be the one to write this particular account of the scriptures is because we talked about this in the early days when we walked through this book together, when we started it. John never refers to himself by name in this book. Never. We say it was written by John actually because of the absence of John in the book of John. 
We don't, John's just absent. When you understand the, the structure of Jesus' disciples, Jesus had the, the crowd, the multitudes, the thousands of people that followed him, right? He had crowds that just sort of gathered wherever he was, maybe from those areas, those are sort of the crowd. Then he seemed to have a crowd that followed him around. We, we estimate this based on numbers around three to 5,000 people that seem to follow him everywhere he goes. Then he had a, a group of about 120. Then inside of that, he had a group of about 70 made up of that 100, out of that 120, about 70. You fought, you're tracking with me? Out of that, that 70, he had the 12 that we know of as the disciples. If you grew up in church, they were on the flannel graph. Um, the rest of them were just like a herd of people that were all together in one flannel graph. But the disciples got their own because they were cool. And then uh, in, in, this, in this 12, though, we seem to see Peter, James, and John sort of establishes a three inside of that 12 that seem to be even closer. And inside of that, we see John, who calls himself, listen, in his book, he never refers to himself by name. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think if you have the choice to go by your name or to be known as the disciple whom Jesus loved, always pick the disciple whom Jesus loved. We see John having this unique, intimate relationship with Jesus, even to the point of the last night of Jesus' earthly life. John is there resting, sitting, resting his head upon the chest of Jesus. I share all that to say, I think part of what John is trying to communicate to us, what the Spirit of God is trying to communicate to us through the Gospel of John is not only the sonship of Jesus, but I think Jesus is also here demonstrating what is the essence of sonship for us. See, in the same way that, that, that Jesus is showing how he relates to the Father, I am here trying to tell you I think it's also an invitation for us to relate to the Father the same way, that we are called to relate to the Father as sons. Now, now let me be super clear, because I, I, I got to back this up, or else these are just sort of blanket claims. So, so maybe super clear, Jesus is unique as God. Try this side of the room. Jesus is unique as God. You guys should get in small groups with them. So Jesus is uniquely God, that, that Jesus is God, and, and, and Jesus, as, as a member of the triune Trinity, Godhead, he is unique as God. Amen? Okay, but he's not unique as a son of God. And this is where Christians start to squirm. Okay, now I'm going to be real. We, we're on a real narrow road with some huge, nasty ditches on the side of it. So we're going to read some Bible today. Okay, so just so that you don't think I'm pulling stuff out of nowhere, this is Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he, this is speaking of the Father, foreknew he also predestined. For those of you here, the Armenians in the room that are squirming, don't worry. Predestined just means God picked you before you picked him because he chose you. I love you. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he, that is Jesus might be the firstborn among many. Brothers are all sons. So if we're brothers with Jesus, we're sons of God. Now again, just in case we got some new people here who think I'm being sexist, I totally am. Because the New Testament gives no language for daughters of God. The reason why it does this is because in the context of the culture of that day, only sons got to have an inheritance. So spiritually, we are all sons of God. This is why we choose here to use versions of the Bible that hold on to that gender-specific pronouns, like sons or brothers. It's not because we, we think only men are important, and I don't believe it was written that way because only, it was only written to men. No, I think it was actually the Bible trying to elevate everybody, come on, to say we all have an inheritance in Christ. And just to equally offend everybody, it also calls us all the Bride of Christ. And as hard as it might be, ladies, for you to picture yourself as a son, it is far more uncomfortable for all of us to vision me as a bride. <laughs> Only my son wants to see me wear a wedding dress. <laughs> and that's just because he's a punk. <laughs> he's my favorite punk, but he's still a punk. Um, he's 14. 
He's an awesome punk. So, uh, <laughs> so what, we, what we have to get here is that we, Jesus, come on, is unique as the son. This is the way I, I, this is the verbiage I try to use to differentiate. Jesus is the son. We are a son. There's a, I want to make sure that I'm clear. Again, there's, there's some huge, heretical, nasty ditches that will screw up your life if you fall into them. You don't get to be God, <laughs> okay? That role, already filled. That, that spot filled, done, finished, gone, doesn't, there's no openings in that job, okay? Okay, no, no openings, no, no, we're not even taking applications, okay? Just, no. And yet, we are invited to be sons of God. We are called to be sons of God. By the finished and final work of Christ, we are made sons of God of God. And what I'm saying is this, as sons, we are invited into the same level of intimacy that Jesus here is describing that he had with the father. And I think it's this intimacy that is the cure for both, for, for all three camps, for the, for the mere humanists who think it's all just in your head. Come on, when you have a real genuine encounter with the love of God, you get that it ain't all in your head. So it frees us from mere humanism. It also, though, calls us out of dogmatic fundamentalism, where it stops becoming, I read my five chapters a day, and that makes me a better Christian than you. I used to say this to my young people when I was a youth pastor. I don't care how much you read the Bible. I care how much the Bible reads you. I would rather you let the Bible read you one verse <laughs> than you read five chapters a day out of the Bible. But it also calls us out of and away from and beyond some sort of mystical superstition where we just sort of sit around and try to, try to elevate our understanding or have some sort of grand spiritual experience. No, Jesus here calls us out of all of those things and says, just be intimate with the Father. That's what it's about. Jesus here says that all that he does flows from that intimacy. And so then the, 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 the honest question should arise in the hearts of the sons of God, well then why don't I live the way that Jesus lived? Why is it that, that he's able to do these things and I seem to struggle just to get out of bed in the morning sometimes? Why is it that, that I don't seem to, to have this same level of effectiveness in my life? Because here's the thing. I think at the end of the day, we like to be effective. Does anybody remember what life was like before Amazon? Anybody? How did we live? I mean... How did I live before I didn't know I needed a new blender cup and now I have it tomorrow? It's just amazing. You just go on, you push a button and it shows up at your house. It's wonderful. It's fantastic. It's a little scary, but whatever. I mean, who cares? Because it's there. But one of my favorite things about Amazon is, is how much time you can waste on their reading reviews. And I think my favorite reviews, if I'm going to be honest, my favorite reviews are either the five-star or the one-star reviews. Because here's the thing, nothing is that good and nothing is that bad. <laughs> People get really angry about all kinds. If you want to have fun, just on your own time, I don't have time, just Google funny Amazon reviews, okay? They're awesome because how angry can you get about how poor the picture quality is on your $25 TV that you bought. It was $25. Calm down. Okay. And it got to your house in a day. So chill out. It's just amazing to me. But one of the things that, that's actually, they, the analysts say made Amazon so successful is those, are those reviews. Because we can tell is, is what I'm about to buy online where I can't touch it, taste it, feel it, test it out for myself. I can hear from other people. We, we want to be effective in what we do. We want what we buy to be effective. We want employees that we hire to be good at their jobs. And so the, the problem is that we try to apply that same logic to our, our life with, with God. We try to learn the rules or hear reviews or learn things or, or do things. And Jesus here does this amazing thing. This is where we ended last week, that Jesus demonstrates an efficacy produced by a security received through an identity born out of an intimacy. See, we want to get just to the effective part. Just get me there. Just tell me how to do the thing. 
And the father goes, no, it doesn't, you don't get to do it that way. <laughs> We're going to start over here. Just be with me. Just be with me. No, but I got stuff to do. I want, I want to do stuff. I want to finish stuff. I want to accomplish things. I want to be effective. And the father says, how about you just sit here with me? Just be with me. Just abide with me. Just be with me. Again, 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 understanding. I want to make sure we get this. I'm not just making this stuff up. Galatians chapter 4. Do you got a Bible? Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Verses 1 through, I think we're going to go 6 or 7. 7. We'll do 7. I mean, this is Paul writing to the Galatians, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elemental principles of this world. We're, we're trapped. As, but prior to the, the, the redemption of our lives, we are trapped in picking one of those three camps. Humanism, dogmatic fundamentalism, or supernatural superstition. That's all the choices we have. Jump into one of those camps. He says, we're, we, we are held in slavery to those things. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, everybody say Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, we, we've got to get this. There's a, there is a transference, a, a shifting, a change that happens in us. Jesus here is not just saying, I do it this way uniquely, but what he's saying is, no, 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 I do it this way. I'm able to accomplish these things because of the intimacy that I have with the Father, because of the relationship I have with the Father. If you think this is unique just to Paul's writings to the Galatians, it's not. Romans chapter 8, he almost says the same thing, but in a different way from a different angle. Romans chapter 8, verse 12, it says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. See, what Jesus is doing is, is he's starting off here by trying to show us that God is not a judge, a lawgiver, or a distant, disconnected, disinterested deity, but as Abba, Father. For those maybe not raised around the church, and really for those of you who were, and you heard that Abba means daddy. It doesn't. <laughs> I know all of you who believe that are just heartbroken. Uh, essentially, the... the the, the difference here in the way that it says Abba, Father. Father is actually used in Greek. The Greek word here is used very similar to the way we would use in English, Father. Father, mostly in conversational English, is used for a position, right? I have a father. Who's the father of the child? It's a very sort of positional attitude. Whereas dad would be what you probably call your father. It's the relational word. Abba simply is the relational word for Father. So what, 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 what Paul is trying to get to here is he's trying to say that the Spirit of God comes into our life. By the Spirit of God, we are rejuvenated. We are, we are brought into Christ, into relationship with the Father, and not just positionally, but relationally. We can relate to God as Father. Now, I want to be super clear. I want to stay as clear as I can. God is a judge. God lovingly gave his law to his people. And God certainly is other. He is, he is holy. He is, there, is a, there is a real reality of distance between us and God in, in his personhood. Amen? 
So those things are all true, but Jesus comes to show us that if that's the only lens through which you see the Father, having intimacy with him is going to be very difficult because we're gonna be riddled with fear that we're about to be judged. We're gonna be riddled with indifference and, and, and back and forth because we, we don't know what rule we should follow at this moment. And we're not gonna think that he actually wants to be with us. We're gonna constantly feel like we're annoying him if we think he's a disconnected, disinterested, dis distant God. So he says, no, that's, that, that is not the way that God desires to relate to his people. He desires to relate to his people as dad. He desires to relate to his people through intimacy. And as we draw near to the father, we discover his true nature and our true identity as sons. I'm, I'm convinced that the closer you get to the, okay, this isn't a real word, the fatherliness of God, the more sure you will be of your own sonship. Because fathers make sons. What I mean by that is I am, I am a son because he is a father. This is so important to me. I am a son because he is a father. He is not a father because I am a son. What I'm saying is we're not just changing the way we see God so we see him, you know, so we understand him better. No, we see him clearly, accurately, uh, with, with, with proper understanding, then we see him as father. That then changes me. We're not changing God. He is unchangeable. He is the same yesterday. Come on, he's the same today. He'll be the same tomorrow. But I am the one to be conformed into the image of Christ. I'm the one to be made evermore into the image of a son. He doesn't change. I change. I'm a son because he's the father. Come on, I'm a son because he's the, you get the importance of that. Anyone can just tell you, well, if you just see God different, you should just change God. You should swap your God for a nicer God. Because this is, this is, but here's the deal. This is the way a lot of Christians think. I'm just being honest with you. Come on. The father is the mean one. Jesus is the nice one. And the Holy Spirit is the weird one. And that's just the way we're going to relate. But that's not true. Jesus, the Bible says, is the very image of the invisible God. Jesus here just said to us and to these Jewish leaders, come on, that, that, look, all I do is what I see the Father doing. You want to know what God's really like? Do you want to know if God's concerned about homeboy carrying his mat on Saturday? He's not. Because I'm not, so he's not, and I only do what I see the Father doing. Why did I tell him to pick up his mat? Because I heard the Father tell him to pick up his mat. All I do is what I see the Father. Maturity as a son looks like dad. Can I use you guys for a second? Half the time I think your son is you when I see him from back walking away because he walks just like you. It's the funniest thing. Dads and sons, they just, they, 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 they get confused. They get mixed up. My, 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 it, it happens all the time because maturity as a son looks like the father. Jesus here is saying that like my identity doesn't come from my identity. My identity comes from my Father And without a father, without relating to God as father, we are left to try to come up with our own identity. So from here, when we're sons, we know who, when sons know who they are, more importantly, when sons know whose they are, they possess a security that gives stability and confidence that is beyond um, criticism and circumstance. This is why Jesus could stand in front of the religious leaders of his day and not falter in his perspective. This is why he could say, so Jesus answered them. Because you have uh, this, this understanding that I'm saying I'm God, I'm gonna double down on that and make sure you really get it. He's not backpedaling. He's not trying to clear up some misunderstandings. No, he said, no, you got it. You totally understood it. I'm God. He had a confidence. He had a stability. And from that place of security and stability comes an ability to do all that we see the Father doing. Are you seeing the progression here? <laughs> say, why am I not being effective? Because you're not resting in intimacy. Because if you, you say, I think I am. Well, if you were resting in intimacy, you would have an identity. If you had that identity, you would have a security. If you had that security, you would know the ability. You would have the, 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 the capacity to actually do that which God was calling you to do. So what do you do? You back up to intimacy. 
You, you, you get back to there because as sons, we are invited into the intimacy that brings efficacy. As sons, we are invited into this. Intimacy gives birth to an awareness of our identity as sons, which in turn imparts a security that produces an efficacy required to walk in partnership with the Father. I think this is what Jesus is trying to tell us. This is what he's trying to say to us. He's trying to show us, you, you, you want to know how I do what I do? You want to know why I do what I do? I just want to be with the Father. Come on, it's, it's not, not, not enough. Listen to me, I, I love you. It's not enough to just say, well, God, you can have the first part. Listen, that's a good first step. God, you can have the first day of my week, you know, the first hour of my day, and the rest is mine. That mindset kills intimacy. But it's, it's, it's the mindset we fall into when we think that Jesus only redeems Sunday and the first hour of our day. Instead of understanding that, no, he wants every moment of every day unbroken intimacy with us. He wants that. He wants that. You need it. He wants it. <laughs> Can't stress that enough. He's not, he's not a needy junior high boyfriend, okay? He doesn't need you. He wants you. He desires to be known as father. And I would be a poor preacher if I did not make sure I ended with this. All of this, all of this that we're talking about starts with the work of the Holy Spirit moving on your hearts, leading you to the Father through the Son, Jesus. Make sure this is abundantly clear. This is not about you mentally changing the way you see the God. This is about you responding to a sovereign move of the Holy Spirit in your heart that changes you from being a slave into a son. See, Jesus doesn't just come down and say, hey, uh, uh, I have, I have a, a better encounter for you than you've ever had before. I have a, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna help you see God. I'm gonna change you from being a, a, a slave to sin who is a cruel master. Now you can be a slave to God who's a kindly, nice master. Now, how many of us believe here that an encounter with Jesus can fix anything? Come on, an encounter with Jesus can fix anything. I believe that with every fiber of my being. I have given my life to that truth. We structure our services around that reality. Our goal is not to get you to listen to me talk. Our goal is not to get you to sing along with a band. Our goal is to help you encounter the reality of the living God found in the person of Jesus Christ. That's our goal. An encounter with Jesus can fix anything. But Jesus doesn't come offering a one-time encounter so you can live happily ever after. Jesus comes and he transfers us from slaves to sons. How many of us understand God is our master? And he is good. And he is kind. But it's not simply a changing of masters that we're after. We fundamentally have to be changed in the very core of who we are. And I just, I don't want to be mean, and I don't want to, I don't want to put unnecessary stress or anxiety on your life, but just hear me, please. If, if when, when, when I talk about intimacy with the Father, if you're like, nah, not really my thing, then I think you need to prayerfully, carefully consider whether or not you have actually been regenerated. Because according to the text we read in Romans, that is the evidence that you've actually been saved. There's a spirit inside of you that's a son now that cries out, Abba, Father, I want to relate to God as my dad. I want to relate to him in intimacy and in reality, not in distance and religion. Not in mysticism and spirituality, but genuinely resting in his lap 
as my father. And if that's not in you, if that desire is not in you, then I don't care how, what, what drugs you've gotten off of, how much better of a person you are, or, or that you change which party you vote for. None of that matters if your heart has not been transformed from being an enemy of God to being a son of God. And that only happens, listen to me, that only happens by a sovereign move of the Holy Spirit of God. You can't make it happen. You are just called to respond to its happening. And if you're here today and you have not responded to that, it is my prayer and my plea and my cry for you to do that. For you to respond to the moving of the Spirit of God in your heart and in your life. For you to admit and abandon that you have chased everything else and not him. And for you to embrace the very person, the very work, the very power of Jesus. And for you to trust him for who you are. And for you to look through him to see the Father. And for that to transform the very fiber and core of your being. And guess what? Probably gonna live different. You may vote for a different person. You may change your behavior, but all of that is going to be fruit, not root. All of that is going to be a byproduct of the Spirit's work in fundamentally changing who you are. This isn't a get out of hell free card. This is a change the very fiber and core of your being. I am, I am not the same person I was before I was transformed by the Spirit of God. Some of you here wonder why some of the people here worship the way they do. It's out of gratitude that we're not the same people we used to be. Why do we sing so loud? Why do we sing so long? Why do we, why do we use the language we use? Because we're not who we were, and that's not of our doing. It's of his. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to move to responding. We do that here in, in a handful of ways. We celebrate. We sing. We worship Jesus. We do that through communion. And we mean that in two predominant ways. We, we take communion, the traditionally understood sacrament of communion, the broken body and shed blood represented in bread and a cup. We take here by a method known as antiquation where we take a piece of bread. We also have gluten-free wafers at each station, dip it in the juice. We have a fully gluten-free station all the way down there if you need that. And these tables are open to all who've put their faith in Jesus. We, we don't require that you be a member here or a part of a particular denomination. There's no secret handshake or rules about that. If, if, you've, if you've experienced that regeneration, if you've experienced that shifting in your heart, that shifting in your spirit, if you have come from, from being an enemy of God, a, a slave to sin, to now a son of God, you're welcome and invited to partake with us. We also believe in the communion of the saints and going to one another and, and allowing each other to pray for us making our needs known. And so we have a team of people that have been trained to, to, to pray and, and they'll be meeting down in this lit area kind of behind the, 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 the chairs over here to try to give people some privacy. So if you're here and you have any need whatsoever and you just want to be able to stand and pray with somebody, that team would love the opportunity and the blessing to be able to stand with you and pray with you. The other thing we do is we take some time for contemplation. As we sing as a church, this isn't a time to disengage from what we've heard, but rather take some time to allow what we've heard to travel deep within us and maybe shift some stuff around. Specifically this, this morning as, as I was preparing, I think this message is maybe understood by believers quite simply as a call to non-believers to, to have intimacy with the Father, but 
I think there's another thread through this as well. And that is, I think it's a call for those of us who are believers to take inventory of our life with him. Has your relationship, has your relating to the father become supernatural superstition? Has it fallen into just dogmatic fundamentals, just rule following, just ticking off boxes? Maybe if, if you'd be honest with yourself, has it, has it just slipped into humanism or this is just sort of a, a now, it's just the way I live my life now. It's just a good moral code that I follow. I think it makes me a better person. Speaking really quickly to those of you who maybe have fallen into humanism, believing that a zombie can make you a vampire and not go to hell probably doesn't make you a better person. Believing that the Son of God left heaven, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, was raised perfectly back to life again, thus defeating death, hell, sin, and the grave. And now through that offers to you the free gift of eternal life. That, come on, will change your life. That will make you a better person. same person who wrote the gospel of John, we believe, wrote the book of Revelation, in which he calls Christians to return to their first love. Revelation chapter 2 speaks of this amazing church doing a bunch of amazing work, doing a bunch of awesome ministry. And yet he says, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. And this is what he says to them. Repent because of how far you have fallen. They weren't doing drugs, they weren't stealing money, they weren't, they weren't cheating on their spouses. And yet the scriptures say losing our first love is falling and requires repentance. So this message is not just the non-believer, though I hope if you are here and you have not repented and believed the gospel that you would do that today. But if you're here and you would say, no, I'm a son of God, I just want to ask you, how's your love life? How's your intimacy with the Father? How's your, how's your, how's your connectedness? Are you, are you trying to relegate it to a time? Are you basing, listen, are you basing your relationship with God on clocks and calendars? He gets certain time and he gets certain days. Because he's after it all. Come on, he's after it all. He's not interested in your leftovers. He wants all of it. If you're here and, and, and you would say that that's you, I want to encourage you to make your way and let some people stand and pray with you. I want to encourage you to take some time to repent before the Father. And I want to encourage you to, to remember what it is to worship and exalt him. So I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna move into response. Holy Spirit, we thank you this morning that you continue to call us. You continue to call us into relationship with you. You continue to invite us into unbroken intimacy, into scandalous abiding with you. And Lord, I pray in these moments we would not feel rushed, we would not feel, feel scurried, but we would rest in the assurance of your goodness and your faithfulness toward us. God, that you would be exalted in Jesus' name. Church, let's respond to the Lord.